Good morning. Uh, before I open us in prayer, on behalf of the whole team that got to go to Honduras last week, I just want to thank you, Covenant. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayer. And just know, I'm sure you'll hear more about it later, but just know that we were far more blessed than we served. Um, now, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together and worship this morning as a covenant family. Father, our hearts are heavy in many places with chaos and brokenness on this earth, and we hold fast to what you tell us in Psalm 118. You are on our side. Father, we desire not to fear. You are our strength and our song. Your steadfast love, Father, endures forever. Per your plan, the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Father, all this is your doing, and it's marvelous. This is the day you have made. We rejoice, and we're glad in it. Thank you, Father, for going before us and for never leaving or forsaking us. Father, we do rest knowing that you hear our prayers. We see your handiwork all around us, and we have so much to be thankful for. Father, we know that all good things do come from you. Father, we also know that you're the great healer and comforter. Father, we give you thanks for Christopher Luke Driscoll's life, and we give you thanks for Catherine's good health. But Father, our hearts are heavy, and we ask you, Lord, to surround them, protect them, and heal them with your mercy as only you can. Father, meet them in their grief as only you can do, and help us, Father, care for them and love the Driscolls well. Father, please bless Kathy Girardeau as she's having spinal surgery on Tuesday. And please continue to bless Bill and Cindy Hay as Bill recovers in the hospital. Father, today is All Saints Day. Today we remember our believing loved ones who have passed away. Please do comfort those who are bereaved, Lord. And also may it be a reminder to us to live our lives with eternal purpose focused on Christ. Father, please provide for and encourage Dane Boykin and Aspire Ministries here in Birmingham. And bless Forgotten Children's Ministry, loving on children and families in Honduras. Thank you again, Father, for Covenant and the support Covenant provides to missions, to missions teams, and to missional work around the world in obedience to your commission for us to go into all nations. Father, we ask you this morning again for your spirit to move, that we might honor and glorify you in our worship today. It's in Christ's name we pray. And te amo, Lord. Amen. So when you go to Honduras and you pray with the kids at Forgotten Children Ministry, you all hold hands. When you're done praying, you say, te amo, Lord. We love you, Lord so fun. We do love you, Lord, and we're thankful for who you are and what you've done for us, and uh, we're thankful for you guys being here this morning for a privilege to be with you. My name is John, I'm one of the ministers, and if you are a guest, you're visiting with us, we are especially thankful uh, to have you. We are continuing this morning with our study through the book of Numbers. Uh, Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible, part of a section of scripture called the Pentateuch, or the Torah. And this is a particularly important section of Scripture as uh, it begins the biblical narrative uh, because it lays out for us um, a foundation and trajectory uh, for the whole biblical story. Uh, it tells us important things like who God is, 
what he is like and what he's up to in the world. It also tells us who we are as human beings, what God expects of us and what we're like. As I was studying our passage this week, um, I had you know done my Bible study and looked at a couple commentaries and put together my sort of th- my three points. You know, a good Presbyterian sermon always has three points. I'm not sure why that is. There's nothing magical about it, but they teach it in all the seminaries, so there's got to be something there. And so I'd come up with my three points, and I looked back at my three points, and I thought, man, those are some good points. This is going to be a good sermon. Um, and as I kind of chewed on that a little bit more, I thought, you know, I've seen these points somewhere before. They look a little familiar. I was trying to figure out where, uh, how, and I looked back to my sermon notes from last week at Robbie's sermon, and I thought, oh, these are the same three points that he preached last week. I was like, okay, so back to the drawing board. And uh, so there's two options of what happened there, um, probably a little bit of both of them. But one, on the one hand, I had, you know, just so absorbed and imbibed uh, those scriptural passages and those points that they had just become part of my subconscious. They were just part of who I are. And so I kind of transposed them onto that text. That's possible. Uh, but it's also possible, and what I'll tell you is true, is that this uh, section of scripture that we're in, in the book of Numbers, uh, is a book that has themes, content that repeats itself, uh, that presents itself in different ways. Uh, the particulars are different, but the themes through this portion of the Bible are very similar. This middle section of Numbers, verse, uh, chapters 11 through 21. And the main theme this section of numbers, uh, the idea, the topic that Moses brings back to our attention again and again, uh, is sadly the sinful rebellion of God's covenant people. We've come to a portion of scripture where God has done incredible things in time and space and history. He's called a people to himself He's delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai where he's given them his law. He showed them what it looks like to be a holy people, to live for God now that he's saved them. He's given them the sweet gift of worship, a a tabernacle. He will dwell in their midst and invite them uh, into his presence through the sacrificial system, through uh, the mediatorship of the priesthood. And now he's going to take them into the promised land, and yet they respond not with faithful obedience, but with sinful rebellion. They don't want to go in to the promised land. Uh, And then they decide that they'll do it on their own, in their own strength, apart from God. Sinful rebellion. And we'll see that again as we come to our passage today in Numbers 16 through 18, portions of which... We've printed before you in the worship guide. And as we consider this weighty topic again of the sinful rebellion of God's people, I want to remind you of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that these things were written for our instruction, that these were written as an example to us so that we might not do evil as they did, lest we not enter into the rest of our master. And so what you see in these passages is God's response, not just the sinful uh, rebellion of God's people, but God's response to their rebellion. And there's two significant things you see here. You see that God responds with judgment, with justice, 
uh, but also with mercy and with grace. And so, you know, I had to chuck the three points that I had because they were Robbie's three points from last week. So I had to come up with some new points. And instead of three, I actually found five, if you can imagine that. Um, And so this is the book of Numbers, and we'll look at this text today actually through some numbers. So here's what we're going to see in today's passage as we consider God's response to his people's rebellion. We'll see uh, that there have been five rebellions. This is the fifth rebellion of God's people. We'll see the four conspirators of this rebellion, and we'll look at their motivations uh, in it. We'll see three judgments of God as he deals with the rebellion. But we'll also see two powerful demonstrations, reminders of God's grace toward his people. And ultimately, this will all culminate in the role of the one mediator who intercedes on behalf of God's people in their rebellion. So I invite you to turn with me to our reading today. We've printed this before you in your worship guide. I would also say if you've got a Bible, we will be referring to a few things that we weren't able to print for you today. So if you've got that, it could be helpful. Um, But please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Now Korah, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them and Yahweh is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of Yahweh? And when Moses heard it, he fell on his face and he said to Korah and all his company in the morning, Yahweh will show you who is his and who is holy and he will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before Yahweh tomorrow. And the man whom Yahweh chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, Shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? And Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, say to the congregation, get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart please from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs lest you be swept away with all of their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that Yahweh has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then Yahweh has not sent me. But if Yahweh creates something new, And the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up so that all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised Yahweh. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and their goods. 
So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, and they said, Let's the earth, let's the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from Yahweh and consumed the 250 men offering their incense. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of Yahweh. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of Yahweh appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from Yahweh. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun amongst the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of Yahweh shall die. Are we all to perish? So Yahweh said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that it is profitable for us and an example to us. Oh Lord, would you so work in our hearts this morning to press upon us the great need of a mediator and the way that you have presented one, provided one for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, encourage us and challenge us and sharpen us and equip us for every good work. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we'll begin here with the fifth of seven major rebellions recorded in the book of Numbers. From uh, Numbers 11 to 21, there's seven major rebellions of God's people against God that are recorded. And uh, if you're familiar with this term, these are presented in a chiastic function. This is sort of a Hebrew literary uh, structural tool. It's a way of outlining things uh, to help you understand a main point. And so the way these things are outlined is A, B, C, D, C prime, B prime, A prime, there's sort of, a, sort of an arrow when you outline it. And the thing in the middle is the main point, and the things on the outside sort of mirror one another. And it's all leading you towards sort of the main idea, the main thing that the author wants to convey. And the, the main thing in this um, series of rebellions is the one we looked at a few weeks ago, uh, their refusal to enter into the promised land. Uh, and then their attempt to try to do it on their own strength. So that's sort of the main rebellion, and the ones around it uh, sort of flesh it out, help us to understand to it, add uh, to our understanding of it in some way. And this particular rebellion uh, is about leadership. 
God's people have risen up against his ordained leadership, the ordained prophet and the ordained priest. And we could take it a little deeper than that and say the the rebellion is really about distinctions uh, that God makes. And what we'll see as we get to the end of our sermon is that there's um, a particular distinction that they're rebelling against. And there's four conspirators of this rebellion. You see that in the beginning of chapter 16, verse 1. Uh, there's Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi. So he's a Levite. He's one of the tribe of Levi, a tribe set apart to help the priesthood in their priestly functions. Uh, we have Dathan and Abiram and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben. So there's four main leaders of this conspiracy. But they've also rallied the troops. There's 250 other individuals who are participating in this. And we're told that these are chiefs of the congregation, chosen and well-known men. These are people of good repute. They're well-respected in the community, uh, not unlike the elders of a church. So these are leaders within the covenant community, and they rise up against Moses and particularly against Aaron. And they have some complaints that they present against the ordained leadership. And we'll take them in order. The first complaint you see in verse 3. Korah says, you've gone too far, Moses, because everyone in the congregation is holy. God dwells in the midst of all of us. Why do you exalt yourself as a leader over us? And so the issue on the surface level here is, again, about leadership. The authority, the God-ordained authority that Moses and Aaron wield. Uh, And it seems like uh, Korah and his friends see this as positions of privilege and authority Uh, to lord over people uh, instead of positions of sacrifice and service. Uh, But they're jealous about this. We read that in our Psalms reading earlier. They're jealous about the positions that the priest and the prophet have. They're discontent because they don't have those positions. And Moses says later, he's like, look at all that you do have. You are of the tribe of Levi. You get to serve in the tabernacle. You get to camp near the tabernacle. You actually have a lot of privilege and position. But you see here that Korah and the others there can't enjoy what they do have because they're discontent. They're fixated on what they don't have. And what you see here is ultimately this is a belief that somehow God has got something good that he's withholding from you. God's got something and he won't let you have it. And so you've got to take it for yourself. And what you notice here is that this is really just a sort of a recapitulation of the original temptation and sin in the Garden of Eden. Satan tempted Adam and Eve. He said, there's something good that God is withholding from you. He knows that in the day you eat of the, free, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. He's given you all this, but he's holding out on you something good. You can't trust him. So you've got to take it for yourself. And notice here the tactics that the rebels use is actually the same one that Satan uses in the garden. Satan took something true that God had said uh, and twisted it. He manipulated it. He presented it as a half-truth and then added to it. And that's exactly what Korah has done here. He quotes um, some things that God had said about his people. God had said that they were holy, that they were a, a kingdom of priests, And that he dwelled amongst them. That's true. 
But God said more than that. God also made a distinction. He set apart a particular class of people, the Levites and then Aaron's family, as priests, as particularly holy because of their ordination and the ceremonies and all that went into it to represent God's people on their behalf. So he's taking something that's true, but he's twisting it. He's manipulating it. And friends, this is always what sin does. It twists truth. It distorts what God has said. It is discontent with all of God's blessings, of which we have many. It settles for half-truths, which are no truths at all, but lies from hell. And it leads us to doubt the goodness of God. Godliness with contentment, Paul says, is great gain. But covetousness, desire for that which God has not given to us, is idolatry. It is seeking God in God's things that he has given. Seeking salvation and rest in something besides him. So the second element of this complaint we read in verse 13. They say to Moses and Aaron, You've brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you might make yourself a prince over us. And you haven't brought us into a land flowing milk and honey. You haven't given us our inheritance or fields or vineyards. So before they've sort of twisted the truth a little bit, but this is just a flat out lie. This is a flat out misrepresentation and mischaracterization of what's going on here. Jay Sklar says that sin distorts our perception so badly that we turn every truth into a lie. So you see what they do here is they present their slavery in Egypt as the land of milk and honey. They're saying it was better for us there. You've taken us out of the promised land and brought us out here to die. And moreover, you haven't brought us into the place you said you were going to take us. So they flat out mischaracterize this whole situation. And what you see here when you think about this is what's really going on here uh, is not just this is a complaint about leadership. It's not just that they're discontent with what God hasn't given them. But what you see here is that they've never repented of their earlier sin of refusing to go into the promised land. They've not been honest about that. They've never come to terms with what they have done. And so now they're blaming someone else. They're blaming Moses. In verse 41, you see a third complaint. And this happens the next day after they've experienced the consequences of their sin, which we'll come back to in a moment. Um, But at this point, they just flat out blame Moses and Aaron for the whole thing. They say, you did all this. This is all your fault. And friends, that takes us right back to our marriages. I mean the Garden of Eden, not our marriages, sorry. Um, But remember what Adam and Eve do after they sin. Instead of taking responsibility, Adam says, this woman that you gave to me, She made me eat. They hide from each other, they hide from God, and they blame one another instead of taking responsibility for their own sins. Unrepentant sin. Failure to acknowledge our sin leads us to covering up our sin, and then that leads to more sin. Unbelief begets unbelief. Sin begets sin. Uh, And you do see this in your relationships. You probably have seen this in your marriage. 
Think about a time where your spouse or maybe a close friend, if you're not married, uh, legitimately pointed out a grievance, a way that you had sinned against them. And instead of accepting that and repenting and apologize, you just said, yeah, but what about you? Remember when you did this? You won't deal with it. It's unbelief. But the more you try to cover your own sin, the more you try to justify it, the more you try to ignore it, the more it will rule over you. Sin is a spiritual cancer that destroys us from within. And a lot of times we have to acknowledge that sin doesn't look like outright rebellion. A lot of times it's much more insidious. It looks like self-righteousness. Trusting ourselves, our abilities, our performance, our own supposed goodness, however you would define that, uh, instead of trusting God. And so I would just ask you to consider this morning, where in your life are you allowing unbelief, are you allowing sin uh, to grow because you're not acknowledging it, you're trying to cover it up. You're trying to deal with it yourself. You won't acknowledge it. You won't ask for help. One of my favorite theologians, John Owen, says, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And one of the most powerful ways we can kill sin is just by being honest about it, just by confessing it to one another and confessing it to Almighty God. So we've seen the fifth rebellion, the four conspirators and their motivations here in their rebellion and maybe we've seen our own hearts in that. And so now we'll come to the three judgments uh, that God brings on them because of their rebellion. You begin to see this in verse 5 and then 17. Moses responds to the first accusation essentially by saying, hey, we're going to let God sort this out, all right, which is a good way to deal with things. He says, God knows who's holy. God knows who is his. We'll let God deal with this. And so he proposes this little test, which they go through with. And he says, all of you rebels, all 250 of you and the leaders uh, and Aaron will all do the same thing. We'll bring forward a censer, which is basically, it's an incense holder is what it is. um, That would have been used in the temple worship by the priests. He says, all of you guys bring your incense holder and Aaron will bring his and we'll see who's offering the Lord accepts. The Lord will know who it is. The Lord will choose. And this seems agreeable to everyone. So they do this. And then the Lord appears. In verse 19, the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God descends to bring judgment on this community sin. It's a rebellion of the whole people because the chiefs are representatives for their people. And then notice that Moses and Aaron intercede here. They plead, God, don't destroy everyone for the sins of these men. And then they say, don't get caught up in their rebellion. Leave them. Walk away from them. There's an opportunity here for repentance. And then Moses says, if God does something here miraculous, you can know that God has shown up. If these men die the way that everyone dies, uh, you'll know that God hasn't sent me. But if God does something amazing here, you'll know that God has shown up that God has chosen Moses and Aaron and God does show up in an incredible way. And there's some kind of earthquake or pit that opens up. We're not sure exactly how this happened, but 
Uh, these men, these rebels, and their, their families, their, their tents, their households get sucked alive down into shale, into death. And then fire comes out from Yahweh, and the 250 men who'd offered incense inappropriately are consumed by fire. And then there's a third judgment later on the next day when all the people come forward and say, Moses and Aaron, you did this. This is your fault. And there's a plague that begins. And God takes the lives of 14,000 people. This is sobering. And our text today, friends, records a serious rebellion on the part of God's covenant people. They have refused to enter the promised land. They have rejected God's ordained leadership over them. They've said that their life in slavery was better than a life of salvation. They've blamed God and Moses for their own sins. Moses summarizes all of this in verse 30. He says, they have despised the Lord. They've despised their creator. They've despised their redeemer. And so now they're suffering the just consequences of their cosmic rebellion. And friends, we have to say that this is the the sad state of humanity since Genesis 3. The world we live in for all of its beauty and goodness, and there's plenty, is a world actively in rebellion against its creator. We, as human beings, suppress the truth about God that's written on our conscience. We suppress the truth about God that is revealed to us in the amazing created world that we see around us. We suppress it in unrighteousness, and we accept a lie instead of the truth. We're all predisposed to go our own way toward evil and rebellion. We've all failed to live up to the glory of God. We fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. We fail to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we are guilty without exception and without excuse. We've sinned against the infinitely holy God. And we deserve the consequences of our sin. Westminster Confession asks, what does every sin deserve? And the answer is the wrath and curse of God. And that is justice. If you get what you deserve, you get judgment. But one of the difficult things about this passage is that it feels to go, uh, it feels like God goes beyond justice here. You think about Uh, the rebels, but then you think about their families who get sucked up into this with them. Their whole households, it says, are sucked down into shale. And people have rightly asked lots of questions about this over time. And so it's worth addressing uh, briefly a few things we might say. Uh, They're all given the opportunity. Moses pleads with them to step away from these evil men and what they're doing. Everyone, even their families, are given the opportunity to separate themselves from judgment. And some take that opportunity, and some don't. We also have to reckon here uh, that our sins have effect, 
have consequences for those around us. And this is particularly true in ways that we serve in leadership functions. And in this context, this is particularly true for those of us who are husbands and fathers. Our sins have consequences for those around us. If a leader, if a father, if a parent adopts an unrepentant, sinful attitude, there's a good chance his kids will adopt that sinful attitude well, and they'll experience the same consequences that he does. When a leader sins, everyone around that person suffers. And you could consider the children of an addict or an adulterer or a person with just unrepentant anger. His family will experience consequences for that person's sin. And another thing that's worth pointing out here on a much more positive note, um, and I'll say that we shouldn't mistake here uh, temporal consequences for eternal consequences. We're told that these men sinned at the cost of their lives, but there's actually no comment to that end made about their actual children. Um, and so just because they experienced temporal consequences does not necessarily mean they experienced eternal consequences for these sins. And it is interesting, later in Numbers, in chapter 26, Moses gives us the information that not all the sons of Korah died in this rebellion. Some of them did remove themselves. They repented of their uh, family's sinful patterns. And they actually go on to become worship leaders in the temple. It's fantastic. Uh, a number of our psalms in the scriptures are attributed to the sons of Korah. And that is an amazing testament to God's redeeming grace throughout the generations. That just because you grew up in a family that was broken and you experienced the, the consequences of that sin in your family, uh, you don't have to continue on in that path. You can go your own way by God's grace. You can break those generational sins. Now we see here in our uh, text this morning two other amazing testament to God's grace. Uh, first, um, he tells them to take the censers that were used in this rebellion, which have now become holy because they've been used in worship, and he says, uh, break them down, uh, beat them out, they're made out of copper or um, brass, and he says, fashion them into a covering for uh, the altar in the temple. Okay, so he says, take this thing that was used in the rebellion and it's now become part of worship. And the second thing he does uh, in chapter 17 is God actually gives another test to sort of double down on the importance of Aaron as a priest. He tells all the heads of all the tribes, take your staff, symbol of their leadership, ruling over their tribe. He says, I want all of you guys, including Aaron, to take your staff and put it in the tabernacle and we're going to see what happens in the morning. So when they come back in the morning... Aaron's staff uh, has budded. It's got buds and blossoms and ripe almonds on it. There's life that's coming from this staff, but none of the others. And God says, take that staff and leave it in the tabernacle as a reminder so that my people won't rebel against me again. So these are two reminders, demonstrations of God's grace. He's taken these two things, put them in the tabernacle. And what's happening is here is if, if you were to approach the tabernacle in an inappropriate way, like these men had done, you would see those two things and you'd be like, oh no, wait, I know what happens. I know how this story ends and it doesn't end good, right? This is a warning from God 
to those who might uh, continue on in this kind of rebellion. Because, friends, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but desires that everyone would come to him in faith and repentance. And for God's people, when we're tempted, we can know, Paul says, that God actually provides for us a way of escape from that temptation so we don't have to sin. And that's what he's doing here because God is gracious. And he does want his people to come into his presence, but he wants them to come the way that he is ordained. And that brings us to our last point, the need for a mediator, for one mediator. This is how God has ordained that we come into his presence. And that's really what this whole conflict about is the mediator. What the rebels are saying when they say, aren't we all holy? Doesn't God dwell amongst all of us? What they're really saying is, do we have to come through the mediator? Can't we come on our own? Can't we approach God on our own terms? Do we have to do it his way? And the answer is yes. You have to do it his way. God is a great king. And he sets the terms for admission into his court. Uh, Next week, uh, Henry Morris and I, our missions pastor, and I are going to the UK uh, for this sort of, um, we're exploring a partnership with a group there, a missions partnership. And while we're there, we're going to go visit my good friend, King George, King Charles. No, we're not going to do that because I don't know King Charles or King George. Um, And uh, if we did want to go visit them, we couldn't just do that, right? You can't just go to Buckingham Palace and go see the king. It doesn't work that way. Right? You have to be invited, and there's all kinds of protocol and rules and regulations about how you come into the presence of the king. And we all know that, and we're okay with that on a human level, but for some reason we seem to get hung up that we can't come to God that way. God is a great king, a righteous king, a holy king, and he sets the terms of how we can come into his presence. Even in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered the world, God is the one who initiates the relationship. And since Genesis 3, God has ordained that we come into his presence through the role of a mediator. And he has provided the mediator, ultimately in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that Aaron and his sons, they were imperfect mediators. They were imperfect high priests. Aaron participated And one of these rebellions, more than one of these rebellions. And Aaron was a priest who would die and need to be replaced over and over again. But we have in Jesus Christ a mediator who ever lives to intercede for us. Not after the order of Aaron from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah, after the order of Melchizedek. A great high priest who's entered into the heavenly tabernacle, a place not made with hands, not of this creation. And because he continues on, never to die again, he ever lives to intercede for God's people. And he can save to the uttermost all those who come to him by grace through faith. And therefore, beloved... Since we have this great assurance, the promise of God, the provision of a mediator, a covenant sealed with the very blood of God's own son, we can draw near to him with full assurance and confidence of faith. There's one who stands in the gap 
who covers our sin and misery, who stands between man, dead in sin, and the holy and living God. And he says to you, he says to us, come. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, come. Come to me. All of you who are weary with your blame shifting and your self-justification, all of you who are tired of pretending that you're something that you're not, all of you who are tired of being discontent, tired of your self-righteousness, your self-justification, trying to do life on your own terms and trying to come to God on your own terms instead of accepting his. He says, come, and he will give you eternal rest in the true promised land because the Lord Jesus Christ is the one mediator between God and man. And he says, come. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Father, thank you that you have given us a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, who lived for us, died for us, rose again from the dead for us, and ever lives to intercede for us. Oh Lord, would you take this truth and drive it deep into our hearts. May we lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and cling to the Lord Jesus, our anchor. We pray in his name. Amen.